In this episode entitled Hit the Ground Running, we have questions on training loads, blood donations, racing hard, weight loss, hot race days, and much, much more. Welcome to the 10th year of the Coach Dobia Multisport podcast for triathletes, duathletes, sportive riders, road racers, time trialists, runners, mountain bikers and fitness enthusiasts. Whatever your distance and whatever your event, this podcast aims to make you smarter and faster. We are supported by Nopin, suppliers of club, custom and aero cycling and triathlon apparel, all made in Devon. Visit www.nopins.com. Also supported by and sat in Southfork Racing. For all your biking needs, I'm not going to mention all the brands, there's nigh on millions of them. Visit Racing.co. UK. I'm Coach Drew. Hi, here, Joe. And I'm once again joined by Martin Crocker, VIP of SFR. Or SFR, does it say? At SFR. At SFR. Yes. Racing. Yes. Hello, Joe. Thanks to SFR. And well. hello to everybody listening. Hello, listeners. This is the May 2018 podcast. Uh, what have you been up to? Uh, not a terrible amount, but cycling mainly, um, and a small dabble into what I like to call jogging. Jogging. Yes. It's not running, it's jogging. Jogging. That's I fine. have done a little bit of jogging, I must admit. And yourself? Well, I think that very much we are underway. The season's cracking on. There's already people that have done, you know, 70.3s, time trials. They've got their first duathlons. There's people doing, you know, different, uh, different races so uh yeah uh i was going to say to you about um three exciting products in the pipeline one will be in the market as soon as possible one will be on slow release soon and one is in final testing and they're across loads of different areas so there's lot there's there's lots of is there anything more specific you can give us? No. Utter, absolute waste of time, wasn't it? <laughs> it reminds us when something happens, that the moment that it happens, you can say, don't forget, look at this, or do you know the background to this, or I can tell you this about this. Well, also, I suppose, even though the season is, uh, is in swing, you know, it means that, you know, Companies aren't resting on laurels and waiting for the the season to start to launch <clears throat> their big thing. So you know, well, even nobody can. Season, nobody so. can, can they? Because even if you're trying to stay fit and you're listening to this podcast, it just uh, we get you know various emails and tweets and stuff from people, and not everybody is super serious and wants to go to you know a particular world championship or or you know be the best in their age group in the country or anything like that. So there are people that I think if they didn't always keep on it, they would notice they soon lose fitness and they lose motivation. So I think, I think we're all, we're all going to be, uh, 
covered in moss if we stand still. So That's we've all got to true. keep sort of nudging forward. I had a great piece. I'm sure we didn't talk about this last time. It was from one of my clients called Daryl Yorich, and he's just done London Marathon, actually. Uh, very hot day. For those that did it, wow. You got the perfect, well you got the perfect storm, didn't you, really? Because it wasn't hot before, and it's not hot now the following weekend. And on the day, it was too hot. Uh, less so, <clears throat> excuse me, for the elite end of the field, because many of them are training in the heat. Many of them are super low fat. Therefore, the amount of calories they use per mile is less. They get rid of the heat better because they've got less, uh, should we call it, uh, insulation. Uh, but for everybody else, it was quite, a, a, quite a, a run, really. But this was a piece from Runner's World. It was page 15 of their May issue. And uh, it was actually about data that had been a review of... Uh, that's 015, isn't it? It's 013. 013. Oh yeah, sorry. Page 13. Page sorry, 13. I was being, was being um, pedantic. Yeah, sorry. Yes. <clears throat> and it was on about um, Go Slow. And it was a review uh, by the fitness tracker Strava, 30,000 marathon runners. And uh, it found in the, in the male qualifiers, I don't know whether they did the female data as well, we'll go on to that, but in the male qualifiers, only 15% of their training was faster than their marathon pace. They ran 85% of their training slower than what we call their BQ, their Boston qualifying, um, qualifying pace. The female data actually, as pointed out by Martin very cleverly, is on the graph next to it, which shows that actually the female uh, qualifiers trained 23% um, above the end result pace if you like the final race pace so you got between 15 and 23 so i think you can pretty much draw the line very close to 20 percent of time was spent actually quicker than their eventual marathon pace but interestingly they say and i'll you know i will quote runners world and it says in comparison male runners who did not qualify ran 57 percent of their runs at their boston qualifying marathon pace or faster so once again, we've got this actual uh, conundrum. If you want to go faster, you've got to do a fair amount of uh, training slower. Now, I will show my ignorance with this. To get into Boston, yeah. you have to qualify, do you? Yes. Yeah, there are, there are criteria to make certain times. Um, it's a very, very sought-after race. It's... It's 180 US dollars to enter for American residents. It's 240 for um, international, but it's just so, so, so popular. But it again um, says, uh, yeah, 23% of the training runs by the qualifiers were at marathon pace or faster versus 64% of their runs were at marathon pace. Sorry. <laughs> I'll say that again. 64% of the runs at marathon pace by non-qualifiers. So non-qualifiers are running too fast. And that does tend to be the thing, I think, with, with people that lack confidence, they tend to run too fast. But have a look. It's in the Runner's World, May edition, page 13, and it just is headlined, Take the Slow Train to Boston, which I think is quite a clever way of looking yeah. at it. But it's one of those things, again, where you draw upon big data to uh 
yeah, to see to see conclusions that if you look at the small data, oh well, I know such and such, and and they do they do two track sessions a week, and, and they qualified. Yeah, but that's only one person. We need to take the big data, and the big data that Strava have pulled in is said. Well, actually, the people that qualified do most of their runs slower. And and this is the thing with people like Strava and Garmin Connect or Training Peaks or whatever you use. Uh, these guys can correlate a massive amount of information for some very specific yeah, yeah. Um, events or very specific group of people. So, like we've always kind of gone on about, you know, the, the, the information <clears throat> that you get from power meters and using training diaries and things like that may seem insignificant in, you know, a group of people rather than a you know a you know a giant spectrum of people but yeah. ultimately it still paints a picture of training fashions and, and yeah, training yeah, yeah. methods that can lead to an end result of being something more refined couldn't it absolutely and i watched it was actually a documentary last night on uh iplayer it was back from i think 2011 and it was a chap who was looking at basically science most of it was to do with uh, the global warming debate but he was actually taking he was taking different viewpoints but he was actually saying about science and he met he met sort of scientists and people that were you know some people with strong opinions about it but then he had to say well look with anything we you know you could have a strong opinion about the earth being flat but if you pull together the evidence from satellites, from people that have gone around the Earth, um, and from various, you know, meteorological, um, if you like, data as to how we spin, etc., it would now be impossible to take all of that data and say it's definitely flat. And it's a bit like that with training. People can take individual things and know somebody that does this one thing, or they've heard that there's this particular training that uh, seems to be really good at this particular gym but it's pulling the whole big thing into a big lump and saying what does the scientific model show and what are we able to still explain as some of those individual outliers which don't fully form into the model but if taken individually can actually distract you from the real truths. And the truths are a lot of training gets done at low intensities by people that are wanting um, to, uh, to, to swim, bike, run, you know, do whatever endurance sport at their best. They do a lot of that in zone one. And it's very interesting because I was thinking this particular uh, piece that was in the runner's world and what this chap was saying about science, which is, in fact, you've got to be able to take all of it together and rigorously push that model as opposed to have a belief and then only go looking for stuff that proves your model. Okay, so we, I think, have to sometimes show that there are little discrepancies. They, they, uh, the runners in that study didn't all train 80-20, but still somewhere between, um, you know, 15 to 23% of their running was done over marathon speed. Okay. What, what uh, sorry, Martin's just taking a picture whilst we're recording. I can't do two things at once. I can't smile at yeah, I know. Yeah, do I you know I'm almost the same. Let's crack on with questions. Let's do it. Let's do it. But thank you, Daryl, for that little, uh, that little gem. That was very much appreciated. And we've got some questions, so we better crack on. This one was from Neil Poulton. 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 Yep. Uh, he says, uh, replying to at Coach Joe Beer, at Crockmeister, and five others, 
experimenting with creatine if you're doing a loading week and then three maintenance weeks when should you time the peak performance to be within that cycle my peak is a four-day track event end of june so should it be during a loading phase immediately after what is optimal and i haven't looked at these questions i'm i set them all out in our little uh, online sheet but i haven't gone and done lots of uh, individual sort of thoughts on this and this one's got me because i didn't know we had one on creatine so the thing with loading phases of creatine is that if you load and let's go i suppose Shall back a step back a step let's, creatine yeah let's explain let's explain so creatine is in your muscle uh as part of the phosphocreatine cycle so when a muscle actually contracts it's to do with the breaking of energy chains that allows then the energy for the muscle fibers to effectively pull like ores on one another and pull the muscle strands towards one another i.e to contract and the the creatine part of that is got from either three proteins three individual proteins and it's uh, synthesized by your body at a level that is okay but is not optimized also you can get it in uh, mostly through uh, like red meat and that's where most people get their approximately works out about two grams a day in most uh, most people's diet on average or there is a product that's been around for several decades called creatine monohydrate and that in a powder form put into water ideally taken with carbohydrate allows you to soak up more of the creatine and be uh, combined in the muscle to to increase your creatine stores and that's been proven again back to the science you take people some have a placebo some have creatine they take it for a period of loading phases which we can go into the specifics of that then you measure afterwards with muscle biopsies what's in the muscle and the creatine stores go up somewhere between 10 and 20 percent depending on the the uptake in that athlete but they go up and associated with that other studies have then subsequently gone okay if we have placebo if we have creatine and then we are testing all of those people on strength who get stronger the people who get stronger are the people on creatine so it's typically associated with sprinting efforts or with uh, resistance training to try and increase lean body mass so it's more of the strength speed end of the spectrum though there are certainly endurance athletes that have used it particularly those that might be on low uh creatine diets i.e they don't eat much red meat but what we've seen is they get stronger and it may just be stronger in the gym or they may be stronger actually when they're training saying wow i just feel really strong so Neil's looking at when does he time that in relation to his four-day track event at the end of June. Well, you're trying to get it into the muscles and the muscles will uptake, depending on what you're doing, It uh, he's on about, he has a, a loading week and then three maintenance weeks. So he's trying to cycle it. Now, after a while, once you've done a loading phase and maintain, you are pretty much going to be tipping a lot of that creatine straight down the toilet or your body will eventually be tipping it down the, the toilet because there comes a point where you're just saturated and every time you go back and reload your body wasn't 
low enough to require that. So you might have one loading day, which would typically be taking the, uh, the creatine maybe um, as many as four times in a day. So that would be four lots of five grams. So that would be 20 grams of creatine in a day, spread over the day, anything up to a four, even a six day load has been uh, experimented with. But there comes a point where there is so much creatine going into the muscles and it's saturated, you basically could just walk up to the toilet on day four, five or six and put three of those teaspoons straight down the toilet because you're just gonna excrete it. And this may be where if people are having blood profiles and they're also creatine loading, they can sometimes be flashed up as having high levels of creatinine in their body. And it's just because the creatine is being converted into creatinine and it's not actually a problem. It just shows they're loading on creatine. I, I don't know whether you're over, you're over supplementing though, really, to be honest, Neil. It's very difficult to know how much um, somebody has in their body because it's not like, say, let's think of something simple. We're going back to the blood test. Blood test, you can easily find out your current level of uh, perhaps vitamin D in your blood, uh, what your hemoglobin is, things like that. It's really hard with creatine because you have to take a muscle biopsy to find out the level. And I think after he's done a few cycles, he's actually not going to be gaining any more. And I wonder that you've got to then feel, is there, a, is there a decrement in performance, which means you need to get back onto the creatine. And once you've loaded, if you've gone for a load, then three maintenance and then a load, you're unlikely to need to keep then subsequently um, reloading. It just comes to a point where most people that have responded well have been the ones that haven't touched it and then got on the loading phase. Once you're on it, you only need a small amount. As I said, it's about two to three grams is the estimate that you need per day to keep your stores level, which is what he calls a maintenance dose. But if you're eating red meat, and then you go back on a loading phase, you're just overloading the body with creatine. And there doesn't appear to be any issues with that. There's no, uh, unless somebody had issues uh, perhaps with their uh, kidneys, in which case they'd probably be already asking their doctor, should I be taking this in the in the first place? But I, I think actually, Neil, you, you basically want to make sure that you finish a loading phase just prior to the track event and not overdo the number of loading phases. If you don't notice the difference between the loading phase and then when you go back on maintenance, you may be just as well to stay on maintenance because maintenance doses are normally five grams a day. That will typically keep up the stores anyway. And if you go and load, you're basically just wasting your money. Well, I suppose that's with every, every supplementation is knowing when to take it, for how long, yeah. what kind of load, and when to stop. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, your body, I guess, you can correct me obviously, Joe, if I'm wrong, but your body will only absorb and use what it can physically store, isn't yeah. it, effectively? And yeah. then, without being rude, it's expensive urine. Absolutely. Pretty much. So, and in your opinion or, or experience, is there a, I guess you've kind of, you've already gone through it and just said, you know, once you feel as though the, the product isn't working anymore, you haven't seen any gains from it, it's probably the time to maybe back off it or stop. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing underhand that's going on. Yeah, creatine's been about forever and a day. Um, I mean, I think I, I first heard about it in, in football and, and rugby, mm. pretty much. And I think a lot of the, the rugby guys were, were using it as, um, as a, 
you know, to, to try and get bigger, to weight train and get yeah, that explosive yeah. kind of, that explosive power. So I did some um, experiments with some rugby um, pros at, at Bath Rugby. Find um, me, that was in the mid-90s. And basically got some samples done, some of the creatine, some not. And just some guys I knew basically in Bath and some tried it and they won placebo and the others weren't. And they knew straight away when they started training, the ones that were on creative were like, I'm, I'm training really well, I must be on it, this is phenomenal. And the others were like, oh, my, training hasn't, my training hasn't actually changed. So they could feel the difference. Now, if that isn't happening with the creatine, you might, you might almost be getting, uh, Neil, almost like too used to it being there. It's almost like, I'm not saying it's a security blanket, but you know, if you didn't touch it for a week, you're not going to get this nosedive of creatine stores in your muscle and suddenly your performance drops. Uh, you may want to think about sometimes actually having a, not, a, not a bleed out of it entirely, but certainly within phases of the season and certainly in the off season, sometimes you just come off all supplements and just sort of, you know, firstly, save yourself money when it's not required to then be fully loaded up. But also with creatine, it is best taken on board when you're having sugar with it. So it may be that even some of the loading you haven't optimized. Not all products talk about taking creatine with sugar, but it is um, an insulin mediated transfer across the muscle. So you do ideally have carbs at the time, literally, I'm gonna say 10 to 20 grams to push it across the muscle. So it's not a lot, but it, it is an effective supplement, but probably one of those higher end ones everyone listening doesn't have to rush out and get creatine it's 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 not going to make you lose weight if actually you need to get your calorie intake better and, and train more consistently it's not going to help you um push hard all the time some of that might be down to getting used to pushing hard it certainly helps people doing resistance training and it can help some people just feel strong there is the chance you might increase your lean mass which means that your total weight will go up and there was one very early study that showed in cross-country runners, it didn't affect their performance. But because they got slightly heavier, it wasn't going to um, make them quicker because as a runner, they needed to be as light as possible. So you've got, to get the, you've got to get the balance right. And I think maybe sometimes people need to, with creatine, buy a smallish amount and suck it and see. I mean, don't necessarily even go on the high load. Just go on one or two doses a day and start assessing are you feeling stronger are you lifting better do things start to come together it's it's on a slow load on once a day it's going to take a month for those stores to go up if you do the high load which should be four times a day for five days even by the end of the week you're going to notice the difference it's whether you want to do a fast load and kind of throw quite a bit of it by the end down the toilet potentially or you go slow load and see what happens over um over the month so good question though, because I think it's one of those supplements that a lot of endurance athletes, they, they ignore a bit really, because they think, oh, it's all for sprinters, it's always for, for weightlifters, but lots of resistance trained, um, sorry, lots of endurance trained athletes use resistance training. If it can make you stronger in the gym, well, isn't that why you're going there? Yeah, and, and also the gray area of, there is no gray area with it. People, people st I still kind of, I, I, talk to a few guys that obviously we, we race with and you mention anything about supplementation and everybody's like oh oh 
and I think this is kind of the stigma and maybe the image of sport, whether it be cycling, running, rugby, uh, triathlon. You know, people are like, oh, what, su what supplements? And of course, as soon as you mention something that maybe someone doesn't know anything about, they're like, oh, you're allowed to take that? But it's like, ignorance, oh. isn't it? I mean, it is ignorance because they're, they're, they're legal. You know, there is a clear line between illegal yes. and legal. And supplements can be... Compared to, you know, going from your, your five grand bike to your ten grand bike or buying, you know, the most expensive wetsuit on the planet versus the one you've got, actually supplements are building the engine. And if you get them right, they're actually very cost effective. And if they help you better across all three sports or across all the year, actually, I, th I think supplementation is probably a bigger area for more people to not... not do it ludicrously and not know what they're doing, but to certainly pinpoint the right things. And if they respond or use things correctly, definitely. I know from, from personal experience and from doing it with athletes up to, you know, up to the level of uh, the chapman Scott third at Boston, you know, everything, everything that you can do to optimize the performance within the legalities of, look, this is a, you know, this is a supplement, this is batch tested, this is legal. You know, there clearly are things that people can take either accidentally or they deliberately find um, supplements that are, that are dubious thinking, oh, if they're dubious, they must be, they must be sort of better because, you know, they've got a really, you know, they've got a really uh, sort of hardcore name. But actually, overall, supplements are one of the ways to um, to actually think about the engine, not just the equipment that you've got, which helps, but think the engine, if the engine is stronger, if you're putting, I think, supplements in, they're not to make up for the fact you've got a ludicrously bad diet. They're all part of the mindset of saying, well, I've got to fuel the body. That means the correct foods. That means sometimes treating myself. That means making sure my supplementation is dialed in. And no, I, I, I think that the people that sort of think, oh, oh yeah, but you shouldn't, shouldn't really have to take stuff like that. It's like, well, you can. You shouldn't really, okay, have any bike apart from a bog standard one and everybody's got to ride the same bike. No, you can, what it normally is, it's, just, it's either an ignorance or a blanket rule that they think anything that's a supplement is therefore, well, the next step is definitely drugs, or really is drugs. And there is a very clear line right down the middle between those two. That's exactly it. And the ones that are properly batch tested and have got sports science to back them up really are things that you can say, you know what, they're, they're fine. So, you know, carbo-loading therefore should be banned because that's an artificial way to raise your glycogen levels. There should be, you know, no gels. There should be no use of caffeine. There should be, you know, absolutely no, uh, no way you should have any electrolytes put in your water bottle, whatever. I mean, you can go ludicrous if you think you should be au naturel, but most of these things that people do, they're not natural in the first place. We didn't come out the cave and used to try and do a 10K to see whether we'd survive the next day we'd have walked we'd have jogged we might have had to sprint we'd pick things up we'd bash one thing against another to to make a tool or whatever but we wouldn't have gone out doing the equivalent of what endurance events are today so you can say most events are pretty crazy in the grand scheme of yeah, things oh yeah we're yeah, lucky yeah. to be able to do them but they're not part of evolution they're certainly part of what we can do but they're not something that we are geared up to from an evolutionary point of view and therefore you need gels to go longer therefore some people do need to rationally supplement parts of their diet that they can't hit right so i i think it's a good question but i think for most people creatine is probably a step beyond what they need to um fundamentally first think about it's your you know your gels your carbohydrates um 
and, and probably your hydration that first and foremost get that right and make sure you're eating a very balanced diet creatine isn't the thing that should be resonating in some people that are just looking for any tiny if you like crutch because right now the training's not quite going right so they'll look oh, oh, oh they said creatine and they rush out and buy it use it wrong and and not get down to the basics this chap if he's talking about you know he's got his um peak is a four-day track event in june then you know he's already got probably cycles of performance it's also something whereby there's a planning process it's not just suddenly randomly go oh oh i think i'm quite fit at the moment let's go into a 5k so make sure you don't think of supplementation particularly high level stuff like creatine as a given and therefore oh i can't do can't do endurance sports everyone's on creatine very few people even understand how to use it properly and, and very few would actually um i think use it i reckon it would be in endurance sports probably less than 10 percent. but yeah that's a good question good actually, question yeah. though um what about the next one do you want to do that yes one? it's um it's from erwin and it says dear joe and crocker i have been wondering for a while what different sports on the same day in a different climate i think we might have to open that up a bit more there you go. that doesn't make any sense <laughs> there you go. let's start again dear joe and crocker i've been wondering for a while what happens if you train for different sports on the same day in different zones for instance i like bouldering which is which is climbing and triathlon if i do a long zone one training in the morning for my next triathlon do i influence this by bouldering short and hard efforts later that day how does that work and when is it safe to run away from a dog after I <laughs> after I slow zone one? Thank you for your answer, Erwin. So that's, actually, I mean, lots of people do that, don't they? I, I think so. I think the crossover of of all sports. I mean, obviously, the guys doing triathlon and, and Ironman. You know, all all of you guys that do that at some point, I should think, will probably do a run and a ride, or a swim and a run, or a, a run and a swim during a day. But it is right, you know. Like Erwin says, you know, it's most of that would be done in zone one. Yeah, There'd be, yeah. I mean, again, back to, back to Joe, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of punt this back to Joe. You know, if, for instance, sorry, Erwin, to ignore your, quest, your question for the minute, with reference to training, if a person is training for a triathlon, I mean, um, would they be doing different zoned trainings on different sports in a day, or would they all be? Oh, quite possibly, yeah. And I think... I think the more that people see that we can do various things in a day, they don't they don't shy away from from actually challenging their body by doing slightly different zones. This isn't to say you deliberately do a different zone, but they quite often you know might have a long bike ride, but later on you know the training in the pool has got some um, effort elements in there so the muscles aren't just going slow 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 all the all the time something like bouldering which is a difficult thing to quantify it's quite hard to think you know what the what the parallel is but i guess it would be no different to somebody going and doing um anything sort of upper body almost ballistically based and actually that's quite good for your muscles if you do it a very long um, session of bouldering and you don't you know you talk about it um, being uh, you know short hard efforts then that's fine but if people do too much of the same thing all the time and they don't challenge their body differently then you you miss out on one of the advantages of certainly lowering the glycogen is when he does his bouldering the muscles have you know they've they've got to they've almost been pre-exhausted then you're asking them to effectively do an interval session and when you 
when you use slightly different energy systems in the same day that's actually a good way of challenging the, the body but it does start to i think get complicated when people are trying to quantify something that isn't really an endurance sport or they're just not very good at the if you like the 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 sort of meat and veg of training the meat and veg of, of training is you know get your base and your skill work in you know that stuff predominates that stuff is is at least three quarters of your week um, and on top of that, your energy levels to do bouldering, to go and uh, do something that's slightly more ballistic is good. Some would say, I can't do that, I'm too tired, or I don't want to do that, it affects my recovery, or I've tried it, but I can't do it both in a day. And I think if you are doing it, the thing is, is that it's not... It's not really ever that the body can't do these things. There's been concurrent studies with weight training and endurance work. And yeah, one compromises one to some extent. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to sort of say that, you know, if you're not a professional, then this mixture of things you do is very good. If you are a pro, then as you get more and more into your season, you get less and less scope to be allowed to do those things because it will compromise your ability so you know the professionals they they don't go out of their little you know it's why they often in the off season do some some things they've been looking forward to for months because when it comes to in the in the season they're just not allowed to go outside of their little box they can't suddenly decide in a grand tour or just before a triathlon that they're allowed to uh, do something weird and wonderful that anyone that's an age grouper could say yeah day before i just went off and you know went went swimming with the with sea lions or something bizarre so i i think if you are getting away with it erwin then i'd say great do it because it's varied and the downside of people seeing sport as now super professional and everyone's very deliberate about what they do is that when you're an amateur, you don't have to be super professional and deliberate. You should actually do a variety of things because that way you'll actually enjoy it more. If you were told, can't do your bouldering if you're going to do your training, then you sort of resent it a bit because you can't do something you like. And often when people do these things, there's always a bit of a stretch. But I quite like that sometimes when you've got to do something. It might be as silly as, you know, three-hour ride on Sunday and then you've got to go to, you know, trampoline park for an hour. And your legs are sort of thinking, blimey, this is a bit of a challenge. But actually that's good because training, if you do it, and it's always very quantified in exactly what you do, I don't think you've got the ability to, to think outside of the current um, training. Sometimes it's quite nice to actually think, of course you can do it. You know, people have said, can I do two 70.3s, you know, in successive weekends? Yeah, if you if you do things right, yes, you can. Can I, uh, there was an instance last year where I think it come to me, whoever it was, female athlete did two back-to-back -back Ironmans over successive weekends and she stormed it. But, you know, two nine-hour races for somebody training 30 hours is actually doable. Um, but I'm sure she didn't do much in between. And I think, Erwin, uh, you should <clears throat> sort of be... One of these people that we see is good that you're doing something different and good that it can be done. And the compromise might be a slight compromise from the point of view of the purists. But as you aren't doing this, you know, as a pro, 
um, it's probably more important that we teach you how to run away from the dog than we do worry <laughs> about the bouldering, you know. And, and, um, and is it safe to run away from the dog? Well, is it safe for the dog to get you would be my way of answering yeah, it. All it. this stuff is, you know, I think, and it might be, you know, I'm not saying it is, but it sounds like within what he's saying, there's an element that he thinks about the safety of things or the... Or the, you know, and, and of course, there's, there's certain things you want to get right, but sometimes you can do stuff that I'm not going to say on paper it's ever crazy, but when I send people to do a time trial and they're triathlete, and I say, right, afterwards you get your running shoes off and go, go for a run and, and that's it. And, um, and at first they think, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to hammer my legs. And then what, go running? like you're going to do an Ironman in four months time your legs are going to be a bit hammered when you when you get off that bike so you've got to get used to it and it's the people then that are the time trialists that go blimey that, that girl's going running and you can do it but people are often just they've got these compartments in their brain of course you can do it loads of people have done it and none of them are superhuman they've just said shoes on my legs are in bits but I'm just going to go off for a run and I think also with this is personally I feel as though it it doesn't, it's not like it keeps the body guessing, but what it does is maybe all the time that you do one sport. So cycling obviously is probably the worst as far as maintenance of what you do for supporting muscles and core. You know, during the season, you do a little bit of maintenance as far as kind of core goes, but most of it is spent training on the bike or racing. You're all a little bit kind of uh, one, one directional, as I yeah, call it. You're yeah. sat on a bike moving your legs in one way and, and, and that's it. Whereas something slightly different like bouldering would be fantastic, for, especially for the upper body. I'm guessing I, I'm absolutely no expert on bouldering. Um, or any form of kind of climbing as well. Because I guess that you, know, you have to manage your body weight. You have to manage the yeah, movement. Yeah. You've got to be controlled um, and, and strong as far as kind of your... your your muscle support and your ligament support so that kind of thing we, we're most of us that listen to this are adults anyway some of us don't act like adults no that would be no, myself no. um but you know you would have an idea of when you are slightly fatigued when you are tired and and you'll know when you go into um i guess when he when, when he goes bouldering pretty much that you know You'll feel it in the legs from the cycle, maybe, or feel it in the arms from mm. the swimming. Um, um, you know, there might be an element of fatigue, and I can imagine that on those days, it's just like, this isn't going to happen, is it? But it's upper body yeah. as well, which can help a triathlete that otherwise would predominate the lower body. So, you know, there is, there is that element of, I like, I, I, I've never given somebody the example of bouldering, but I quite like seeing triathletes doing rowing on the uh, you know indoor ergo because it's upper body it's aerobic it brings in much of the muscle groups that are used in triathlon anyway and if you're in a gym and you get a reasonable technique you can sit on there and you can do an upper body you know 30 minutes 40 minutes and that's an upper body one otherwise the only upper body you do is when you go um on uh when you go on the uh sort of maybe on the the, the vasa type bench or you go swimming, but there aren't many activities that use the upper body. No. And so, so bouldering, actually great, do it. You know, I think the, the compromise, those that think that they can sort of train and then what wrap themselves in cotton wool for hours on end waiting to recover. And actually part of recovery is that if you do feel a bit stuffed and then you've got to get up and, uh, you know, uh, you know, Go, go straight to work after a three-hour ride or, you know, yeah, you've got to, I don't know, take your, take your daughter and a horse and lead it for three miles or whatever you do, 
There is something about that that means that you don't do your training and then get very good at just sitting down and waiting to recover. And I think then you just, you become so insular that your training stops so many activities that you could do. And to do almost all of it, there's been plenty of people that they've, they've definitely stretched my mind about what it is that's possible. And subsequently then when, when asked, oh, can I do two back-to-back 70.3 Ironmans or what if I do, you know, these two sportives, there's only, there's only like, you know, about 14 days apart, right, do it. If you, if you think you can do it and you concentrate, you can do it. If you always think that, you know, the training is something and the, the events are something that you're in such a tight, almost like bandwidth of, of being able to get away with it, that any slight interruption or change is going to affect you, then you're too mentally fragile. Yeah. And, and put, put people in a scenario where you say, oh, sorry, no, they've just added on another 5K in a race. Some people would be like, yeah, great, right. And they'd really be up for it. Others would be like, no, 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 I've finished. I can't carry on now because, you know, I've really worked hard. And others would be like, brilliant, I can, I can chase somebody down 5K that I've got extra 5K to race them down. And I think we've lost that as well, really, as as humans we're getting a bit deep now but we've lost the ability to adapt sometimes i feel is and you know making the body guess making the body adapt you know the body adapt the body adaption is only going to make you mentally and physically stronger yeah. unless you have some underlying yeah. physical issue then it might flare it up or it might make you more aware of an area that you might yeah. have to work on or get some treatment on. what we've done on training camps boot camp that you know, you suddenly give people things that are relevant to the training that they're doing, but they don't know exactly what they're doing, which can be in races. There's already races this year that have changed to be a different, not necessarily format, but a different distance or a different course. And people have to adapt to that. And I think part of almost adapting to a different sport in a day or having the mindset of, yeah, I can do other stuff. Is, is quite good for you because then it means that you have got, otherwise you just put these little, oh, I'm going to do two hours of exercise and then do nothing because I've got to recover. Well, what if you have to do something? What if you then have to, um, we've all been in that situation where you've done some training and then you're absolutely hanging, but you do carry on. The amazing thing is you do actually have um, a better adaptation after that because you, you show yourself how much extra energy you've got. Otherwise you can be, I think, just a bit too... What the word be? It's like almost. I like, like to use the too... word wet, <laughs> as in you know. I, I, and you are right. You are right. Sometimes I, we kind of we, we wrap ourselves, our own selves, up in cotton wool and go, "Oh yeah, but this will impact my training for tomorrow." Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the body's a fantastic thing. You know, it will adapt to anything roughly that you throw at it in a certain degree. So you know, I I feel personally that the kind of cross training that you do, um, if you do stick to one sports, you do become, you do not one trick pony, it sounds really bad, but you've got three tricks pretty much if you're doing triathlon. But you know, just keeping the body guessing and those little support muscles and those little mental maybe niggles that you get thinking, oh, I'm not really strong in the upper body, but I do a lot of climbing or, you know, I do a lot of swimming or running and triathlon. I do a lot of that. So it can't be that bad. Mm. Kind of then just encourages you to maybe be a bit more confident and a bit more positive on what you deem to be your weaknesses. But then when you actually look at it in the cold light of day, you go, well, actually, I do a lot of cross training. So that can't be true. So, mm. you know, and I think sometimes you pep yourself up. You give yourself a bit of a, a kind of a pickup yep. from that as well. Yeah. And Baldwin has got to have psychological challenges and things that are directly comparable 
there is certainly sports that are being dragged in to the cross-training activities of other sports because they realise there's a benefit from it. Great question, that. I like that. Really good. good question. Uh, this is from Gavin Francis, and this is this is concerning blood donations. And this goes back a uh, one or two podcasts. And he says, uh, thanks for picking up on my comment um, that reinfusing blood after a plasma donation contravenes WADA rules. I'm sorry if this stirred up a hornet's nest. I guess the rule is based on the fact that receiving an infusion of spun down blood would undeniably increase an athlete's hematocrit. Just in case listeners picked up on the wrong impression, it may be worth pointing out that there's absolutely nothing preventing athletes from giving blood. It's just that under current WADA rules, once donated, you can't have any of it back. Well, assuming you don't have an accident. You don't and, need it And back. then you, you accidentally <laughs> yeah. get yeah. some of yours own, your own back, but it might be quite a, a fluke thing to get your own blood back. I don't think you'd, uh, don't think you'd ever know it was yours that you got back. Well, we... we Joe and I went after after we had this uh, this question, um, and we kind of went we went away, and then we had a, a nice. We normally sit on the on the bikes on Saturday and Sunday if we can do it, and just have a natter about the stuff. And Joe was quite animated by the fact that you it intervenes, you know, it, it kind of intervenes, intervenes, sorry, it conflicts with a, with a, with a rule. And we kind of get, came to the, the point is not everything is quite so serious as sport and it's not the be all and end all. And yeah, yeah. if you can do your little thing, which Joe then brought up on the previous podcast uh, uh, that we did on the podcast after it saying, you know, you're like, come on, it, it, we're most of the guys and girls that listen to this, you know, we, we do it because we enjoy it. We do it because we like sport. We like to be fit and healthy. Um, and we, you know, we, we want to sometimes give something back. So, you know, I, I'm a, still a massive firm believer that this, you know, you, you, need to, you need to give your bit back. Yeah. Whether that be blood, time of volunteering, you know, at, at triathlons, at running races, park run, doesn't matter. I think sometimes take, take, take should become a little bit of give, I think, with that. Oh, I think we should have that as a T-shirt now. Oh, not okay. another one. Yeah, with your face on it, it'd be great. Pointing. <laughs> <laughs> just, just pointing. What, what, I, what have you done for the world today? <laughs> Raise your eyebrow. Have you done your bit? <laughs> like, um, is it Kitchener that was on the, the World War Two? World War One. Yeah. Oh, was it? Is it that, is it that far? Do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, carry on. I'm here. I'm, I'm here all week. <laughs> right. This next one's racing hard. Okay. Um, oh, this was some. This was somebody who uh, sent me this, and we had that uh, deadline for this uh, particular episode. And this particular person, actually, though it's past the ten pm deadline, several came in late, and uh, there'll be a we uh, we wavered the be, rule. Yeah, wavered we the rule, and this person will receive the uh, the the science in sport prize question um, uh, shipment, and I'll make sure they put their. Uh, their social media picture up so you can see that they get a, a shipment of uh, products as the best question. And the best question starts, it's past 10pm, but it's only the afternoon for me <laughs> as I'm on a night shift. Right. I thought that was genius straight away. Anyway, JB, this is split into two sections. I like this. JB. Good format. In the past, I don't think I have raced to my potential and have probably gone too easy. How do you know how hard to go at different length events, super sprint, sprint, Olympic, half full? 
and this is triathlons, obviously. Having listened to some pro ITU racers talk, it sounds like they go hard and it really hurts. Can you give some guidance on perceived effort level for different events? I don't have a power meter, just heart rate. I'm kicking off the year with a super sprint at the weekend and going up to half Ironman this year. Duathlons, mm, first run easier, question mark. So we'll do this bit first. You can get your bit in a minute, all right? Um, how do you know if you've raced to, to full potential? Well, I mean, in triathlon, you've got to you've got to leave it on the run because you left some of it on the bike, okay? And by that, I mean that, you know, they're going fast ITU and certainly sprint distance because, you know, they're working out around their uh, you know threshold and above. Um, they're going fast because they're incredibly talented athletes, but, you know, nobody is actually going faster than is humanly possible. So they're working at a very high percentage, but they're also very fit. So it, look, it does look like they are absolutely going flat out, but clearly even for an hour 40, hour 50 event, you cannot go the same flat out as somebody doing, you know, a 5K track race that you see on the telly. So, how do you know? And I, you know, the, the perceived effort, I mean, it is, it's very much about, and I always think about this when, when I'm racing me, cause that's the only other person, that's the only person I can race on the planet. When I'm racing me, I sometimes say to myself, in order to go as fast as you want or a bit more, you've got to scare yourself. Cause the only person that's going to back off, nobody, nobody ever on the sideline has gone slow, slow, slow down, slow down. You're going too you're fast. Going too hard, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. there's loads of people saying, go on, go on, push, push, push. And, um, it was a funny thing when I rode my bike back from the shop the other day and I took a slight detour to go up a slightly less um, steep incline that goes up through some houses. And uh, an old chap was, uh, was out in his garden. And because I'm on my race bike, I'm just riding up there and I'm just teetering along. And he was like, go on, give it some. <laughs> and I was only riding back home. But how many times have you heard that in a race that somebody's shouting at you? But the only person inside that can ever be going... Am I risking? Am I pushing fast enough as you? And I think racing is about finding how hard you can push yourself. And some people do have a limiter. Um, others can really turn themselves inside out. And that's, you know, that expression of crikey, they turn themselves inside out means that from the outside, people look at it and go, blimey, they know how to push themselves. That cannot be done all the time. That and the insides come out. And the insides come out, yeah. <laughs> no, that also can't be done every, you know, every four days a week you know athletes that work hard at high intensity racing have done hundreds of hours leading up to that event and how um how dawn do you actually know that well i think you just have to not even base it on speed or heart rate because so many of the so-called standard distance races are different they're not exactly the same distance they might be close they might have different terrain, different weather, different surfaces, different different uh, bodies of water, different amounts of altitude on the bike, on the run, etc. So it's really hard to compare races. And sometimes the one that took you longer was the one you raced the hardest, just because the course was longer. And I think you have to be on the start line of some of your races thinking... I've got to scare myself if I'm going to be excited about this race. If you get on the start line and basically you just tick three boxes in a triathlon or if it's a, you know, an enduro mountain bike, if it's a marathon or something, if you just tick the box, sorry, tick the box that says, yeah, that was pretty all right. And the expression I most hate, and I'm sorry if I, I, I get up people's noses by saying this, but I hate it at the end of the race. 
oh, I reckon I could have gone a bit faster. I mean, that is so irritating. You're, you're going to look back and regret a lot of races if you go, well, I could have gone faster. Afterwards, you should be going, oh, my Lord, I was in bits. You know, I was pushing myself really hard. You cannot do that from the very first stroke of the swim right the way to the end of the run. Let's get this clear. There is still a pace judgment that goes through racing. It's perhaps best done in triathlon because the run is the most natural movement pattern. We don't swim and bike as naturally as we run. We've been doing running for a lot longer. But you have to learn in a triathlon how to really dig yourself into a ground. And that's where the, you know, the best triathletes often have, if not come from a run background, they've learned how to take themselves into a pretty horrible place on the run where other people just back off and just jog along. In other events, you have to learn how much you can push yourself. But I think it's a great question because how do you know when you've pushed yourself at your hardest? And it shouldn't be, oh, I got, you know, I got slightly higher heart rate, so I got slightly higher, um, uh, slightly higher wattage or whatever. You know, did you push yourself? Some races, you should come away for them and think, blimey, I'm going to need a, a while to recover from that. And I do think far too many people do a race and they recover, too, I'm not going to say they recover too quickly, but they could almost do exactly the same race the very next day. And I think races have to stand out as being special performances. Not if you're doing 20 races a year, because you can't do 20 time trials special or 10 5Ks and everything like that. But on days when you are setting yourself out to really draw the line the furthest down the sand that you can... There shouldn't be any regret afterwards that you absolutely gave it everything. And that's still based on progressing through the event. And I can't think of an endurance event where you give the most in the first, you know, first two minutes. That doesn't make sense. Um, perhaps, it, perhaps if it was um, a mountain bike, it was single track the whole way and you couldn't ever pass anybody, maybe. But even that is a weird scenario. But for most people, I think you have to ask yourself, and it's only you that can answer it. Did I actually push myself to live? Were there points where I could have quite easily, you know, I could have quite easily just stopped? And part of the exhilaration I personally get is knowing that you are pushing yourself to a point where it's probably not good for you sometimes, <laughs> but, yeah, but yeah. you do not have a regret afterwards where somebody goes, oh, yeah, but, you know, I, re I, reckon, I, I reckon that's worth about a minute quicker, though, because, you know, this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened and well, I, didn't, I didn't really, you know, hammer it. It is worth exactly what it says on the results. And not if it's a short course, because then you're kidding yourself, not if it's actually... Um, something whereby there was drafting or there was something that made the race particularly quick. And people sometimes cherry pick those. They'll take the really fast, you know, particularly in triathlon where the 5K, you know, might be 4.6K. And they cherry pick that one as the fastest 5K ever. But they don't seem to be able to do that in a absolutely measured 5K. So how do you know? I think, Dawn, you just race yourself to the point where you actually sometimes have to back off because you're pushing yourself so hard. And so many people never do that. I think they would rather definitely get to the finish in an okay state than push it and think, this might actually go wrong. But the only person that can push himself or herself to the limit is me. I am totally in the driving seat. At that point, um, if I'm thinking about my clients it's over to them. I, I can't motivate them anymore. They've been set up to do it, but it has to come internally from them to push themselves to the just the just highest level that they can. And once you push yourself, you say, 
that's how good you are. Because if you keep saying, and I know you're not like this, Dawn, but some people keep sort of saying, I did such and such, but, but I am faster than that. I just think, bloody prove it. Because until you can, it's really fake to say you could do something better. Oh, I could beat such and such's time. Oh, she's not that quick. I could do that. Do it then you can put yourself into the pecking order kind of, you know, quotation. You can't look at a race that you weren't at and say, reckon I'd have got third, or, well, I would have beaten her and qualified, or, well, he's not that fast, I can go faster than him. Unless you are in a race with your name against a time, you don't really have the luxury of, of quoting where you can be, because you don't know the complete circumstances of it. And, and I, our limiting factors are us. Yeah. Our minds, our bodies, but more the mind, oh, isn't it? Yeah. Everybody's everybody is scared of failure. When I think when it comes to sports, so you know, no one wants to break down on the run and go, "I've gone too hard." Or, I'm gonna, you know, that that's when your back is against the wall, and you've in your head you've gone, "I've gone too hard here. I, yeah. I'm in trouble." The finish line is still there. The finish line hasn't moved. You know, it now may take you a bit longer to get there. But in everybody's mind, every athlete, every person I've spoken to that has done sport at any level has just gone, oh, yeah, but what happens if I can't do it? Mm. Like that. But you've done your training. You know, your limiting factor now to reach your potential is you. Mm. Is your, you know, is is your mind, your mind of, of being able to get across that finish line. To go as fast as you can, mm. you cannot, you cannot, like you said, you cannot quantify it until you actually yeah. do it. And you may not be the fastest now that might be the first bombshell to drop but that doesn't matter you can be very proud of pushing yourself as fast as possible but you have to be honest and this is where i think a lot of sports the the people that do well are the ones that do know their times and they are willing you know they're willing to sort of say oh that's that's quite a tough course but i did x and that's it course and time there isn't, I did X, but oh yeah, but this didn't happen. And oh, I couldn't quite get enough air on the day. Or, you know what, I, I think my laces were a bit loose on my, on, my, uh, on my road shoes in that road race. And that was the reason why, you know, it's, it's, it's more, if you can push yourself to a few seconds quicker, great. Because it doesn't end up being chopped off on, on 5Ks. You don't start lopping off a minute here and a minute there and a minute there. It comes a point where we're all, I think, fairly quickly up to where our limiting amount is. I'm I'm not surprised where people get their performances because I know that we can predict a lot of that from their aerobic ability in the first place. What we don't know is how much all of the things combined from their preparation, their mindset, their desire to push themselves. We don't know how much they can actually push themselves to the end of their uh, of sort of their race. Um I I think you race to find out what are your limitations. Sometimes we can all say, Do you know, I just didn't have it. And that's fine. But if you don't try, you won't know. And that's better to just say, I found that really hard and I couldn't, I just couldn't, you know, that, that you know, that, that's, that's, yeah, that's all right. And you have to take that on the chin. You don't have a, you don't have a asterisk next to your name with all the explanations of why you didn't quite do a race. You make the most of it then you go back to the drawing board and see what you can do. If you can do enough things, eventually you'll go quicker. If you're um, incredibly talented, incredibly fortunate, and have a long enough period of time, you can become a very, very fast athlete. But people shouldn't be disheartened that they don't go as 
quite as fast as they think they can. Just keep faith in what you're doing. Where your limit is, people can't really measure that. I mean, you can have a good idea, but sometimes being able to push yourself, maybe on a day when it's a slow day, or it's not the fastest of courses, because, oh, the run's a bit long and the bike's quite hilly, or, wow, that mountain bike course is brutal. Right, okay, so that's not going to be about the fastest mover, that's going to be about the ones that like the hardship. And there are plenty of, certainly long-distance Ironman races, where quite a few people keep shy of it. But some of the harder racers deliberately go to race, because they know that it isn't about who's quick, it's who's able to deal with that tenacity. And why do you enter endurance sports? I don't think it's to achieve stuff on the outside. I think it's to find out what's going on inside and what you, what, you know, not everybody actually is geared to push themselves really hard. There are plenty of people that I think they're doing endurance sports and they're setting themselves goals. They're just not made to really turn themselves inside out. And physiologically, they haven't got necessarily the minerals. So back off and enjoy achievement, but don't set something that's even out of reach. Because you can't just say, yes, but with motivation, you can do anything. I'm sorry, but that is such an overused and such a silly example. You can't. We can put our two heads together after this podcast finishes. Neither of us is going to win the World Championship mountain bike race, the next London Marathon, um, even probably tomorrow morning's Barnstable 5K, to be fair. You know, we can't just say, oh, it's oh, all yeah. in your mind. Oh, okay, okay, okay. 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 <laughs> But, you know, you know, it's it don't set yourself unrealistic goals. And I know it's not the case with Dawn, but there are people and I've I've sort of gone into what they're trying to do. And they're actually trying to do stuff that they have no idea till they race how close they are to that goal. And if it is so far away and they are so um, if they're so ill equipped or they're so new into the sport, just do a bit and see where you go. But don't put the pressure on yourself that you're going to get to a certain level. However, you can find a lot out about yourself and you can take a lot of those lessons into life if you do race. Because some, some are about short, sharp, deal with the intensity now. Others are about the tenacity and the feeding and the ability to do stuff for hours on end. And people have different, different fuses and different switches. So you have to be able to dial into what you're good at, but never presume that it's just about effort and that you'll do something that somebody else can do. And also, like Dawn was saying, um, about giving guidance on perceived um, effort levels for the different events. Is that some... That's a per it's quite a personal thing, isn't it? Kind yeah. of, you know, a perceived... It, I suppose it'd be worth uh, explaining perceived... So perceived, uh, well, perceived effort, loads of people have different ways of trying to give it, you know, numbers or phrases, but... As such, in any endurance event, the longer you go, the more you have to be careful that your perceived effort is something that doesn't run away from you early because you can expend too much energy early on and then find that, you know, you, you slow down in the latter stages because you just have not got the um, ability to put that amount of power because it could be measured in power, that amount of power for that longer time. Faster athletes are actually doing different, you know, they're doing different... Um, different events. Somebody doing an eight hour Ironman is clearly doing a different event to somebody doing, um, doing, uh, 15 hour Ironman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but, and, hey, now let's get on to, let's get on to the second question. We've gone over this, under this and over this. Let's get back to the second question for you. And it says MC. Okay. Part yeah. two. Would you rather have quavers for lips 
Or what sits for a nose. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it got prize letter. Yeah. Now... And I don't want too much science. Don't mm. baffle me with science. I have been thinking about this. Would I rather have quavers for Because I did give you a heads up about this. Or a what? Yeah. Now, I've been thinking about this, Dawn, for about a week. I think I'm going to go for a what's it for a nose. And can you, can you tell us why that might be? Well, I think I've explained this to Joe. Joe was looking quite puzzled when I, when I started to bring this up because it wasn't like it was a conversation that rolled in. It was, there was about, there was a, at least a day apart. So when I came back and went, I've decided I'd, I'd prefer a what's it for a nose. And Joe just looked at me puzzled. Just say, what is he talking about then? I said, well, I said, back to the podcast question, would I have quavers for lips or, or what's it for a nose? So I would go for a what's it. For a nose. Okay, briefly then. Um, I wouldn't have quavers for lips because I think as soon as you get them wet, they'll just disappear. Okay, but what about if you blew your, you know, blew your nose and, and it's a what's it? Wouldn't you get like orange I don't mind that. I don't mind that. You don't mind orange no, handkerchiefs? Okay, okay. Right. So, <laughs> thanks for that, Dawn. Actually. Thanks, Dawn. And you are prize letter winner or prize uh, email winner for this month. There will be another one next month. We've already got a huge amount of questions for next month. I've already got look, listed five questions for next month, but if you're listening, you can still get your question in and it can still be a, a chance to win a, uh, a bundle of SIS I was products. just going to say, is this, is this going to be extended on with another bundle? Absolutely. Yeah. So, this one, we're going to do this a bit short. We're not going to go into it too much, but it is a very valid question. It's question number five and it's weight loss. Hi, John Crocker. As always, look forward to the podcast instalments. As a triathlete, I do a reasonable amount of training, 10 to 12 hours a week, but I cannot seem to lose any weight. I appreciate there is an easy equation, energy in must be less than energy out. But in reality, I love eating and feel it is my reward. (laughs) I feel it is my reward for training. I am training for an Ironman in October. Look forward to your response. Thanks as always. And I can't remember who it was who did it. What I, an amazing question. What an amazing question. And I, I apologise because I normally cut and paste everything into this uh, particular um, notes online sort of in the cloud type thing. I don't know what your uh, name is. So when you hear your name or you hear your question rather, please tell us and we can give you a, uh, a next time uh, shout out. So, um, so first of all, mm, uh, Joe, it's not you how, that sent it, is no, it? No, no. How tall are you? Six foot. Six foot. And, and if you don't mind me asking, how much do you weigh? Present, about 74 kilos. Okay. Well, I'm about 5'8", and I weigh 67K. Right. Now, if you guys have never met myself or Joe, which a lot of you would have met Joe, you probably wouldn't have met me, our first favourite thing to do is eat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and unfortunately, if you are, if you are really really unlucky to sit down at a table with us uh, whilst we were eating um, obviously the don't convers- put your hands near <laughs> yeah the conversation is is very limited whilst whilst we trough um, so this question is music to my ears yeah no no I think about it's, eating enjoying eating yeah because um, you know does, does this person you know they're training for an Ironman and 
they cannot seem to lose weight. Look, one of the things is, you know, how much do you need to lose? One of the advantages about long distance racing is that, yes, you have to carry yourself a long way and, and people that are um, obsessed with the performance of everybody from the first person to the last person should say that, you know, they only eat enough, you know, to, um, to, to, to get by. And actually, if they've got excess weight, they should eat less and, and gradually make themselves into the same shape. Well, we're not all the same shape. And also, it may not be that you want to give up too many things in the next six months to do your Ironman. And that if you did, you would definitely feel as though the, the sort of cost-benefit of it was, actually, I enjoyed the training, but, and I've had this said to me quite a lot of times, I just... I can't be bothered to take it too seriously and start changing everything I eat and everything I drink. Some people like to do that. They like to do everything. They they've got the mindset that they want to have their you know their their energy drinks and their supplements and they and they'll you know go off the drink for six months and say I really want to do this well and then they go back to their old habits. And I think we have to always question: Do people have to necessarily think about losing weight? Because there are people that have lost weight. And they're always trying to lose weight from the point of view that they're stuck in that cycle of less is more. And they can be quite unhappy. And then there are people that are slightly heavier. Um, they get round. They are part of the paying public that do events like triathlons. But they shouldn't be forced into being a certain shape because as the... I think whole endurance uh, church has become a much broader type of different um, uh, just groups of people and shapes of people and people's background. It isn't all about the same sort of people all doing uh, triathlon. And I don't think it should be. And I think it's quite good that we therefore say, you know, don't feel compelled unless you do need to lose weight, at which point sometimes some simple things like some um, fasted sessions, um, sometimes things like uh, just low calorie days, teaching your body, can I actually have less today? Is it possible that I can get to the end of the day and go, I have a bit less than I normally do today, but I'm still alive. And actually that hungry feeling is quite good for us. And this idea of cycling your metabolism, sometimes having low intake days, sometimes having fasted sessions, sometimes actually going at the other extreme and after really good training, trying to increase your calorie intake to make your body inefficient. I think, you know, you can go round and round in circles with trying to see how one should best optimize um, sort of body uh, weight and we don't want to turn it into a job you know this is your hobby this is something that's still possible to do when people are slightly overweight very rarely are people very very overweight okay the training itself should have a uh, a way of certainly reducing your weight now if you really 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 like your food and it is an excuse to go over the top, but then that's more about, it, it often can justify people to allow them to sort of overeat. They sort of say, oh, I'm Ironman training, and you see how much they're, they're sticking on their plate, and it's like, yeah, but there's only so much you can process in any one go. It's not a, it's not a 
bragging rights to see if you can eat you know 10,000 calories in one sitting it's more likely that you're better to do little and often and of course weight and body shape is quite emotive it's often a case that um, you know lots of people their shape often is a function of how long they've been doing the things they do and whether they've always been fit, never been overweight, always struggle with their weight but try to keep fit or they're somewhere in between. And you know what? You can do the Ironman without necessarily having to, you know, totally be um, a sort of a food bore and have to eat, you know, the most purest of foods and can't really um, eat out with your mates and friends that are just going out to have a a curry you don't have to say oh, i can't have that because i'm training for iron man or, or i can't have a drink because of iron man i mean then then people have come back afterwards and they've actually i remember one very specific case and this person went do you know what i gave up so much to do this and i i've realized that i like those things more than i like iron man <laughs> and i was like that's fine yeah. it is not a prerequisite to leave this planet having done an iron man and being as skinny as you like. Some people, that's how they that's how they roll. That that works for them. Other people, they do one or they do you know some kind of challenge. They'll ride Lands End John O'Groats, and you look at them, and they're they're quite well built. But they certainly aren't going to suddenly turn into uh, Chris Froome or any other you know stage rider in the world because they're not that shape. And I I, I like. I've tried. <laughs> I know, guys, and myself. I've tried a lot of things. I've tried being super light. You know, I've, I've, I, if if you saw me, you'd realise that I haven't got a lot of weight to lose. But I can get myself down to sixty-two kilograms if I wanted to, and I have done, and I've done it. But it is. Is that is, when you're angry? Is that when you're always annoyed with yeah. people? Yeah. Easy, yeah. It's like angry, but yeah. I, I, it didn't. It never felt. It always felt like I was on the edge. Mm. It always felt like you were you were you were that fine line between getting ill. And, and being, you know, pretty much well well trained to a certain degree, I just think we've got very we've got very limited time to be at our physical peak, haven't we? You know, from building up to kind of you've gone by the way, AI, you've gone yeah, over the peak. You're on the you're on the slippery slope. slope it's down. very steep. This very is exactly steep it. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sliding fast. Um, so you know, if eating something to reward yourself because you know you've done a, a hard session of training, etc., then why not? Why not? But if it's then used as an excuse, oh yeah, I, I didn't want to make the sacrifice. You know, I enjoy my sport, but you know, I, I, I didn't take my diet seriously, yada yada. Because it, you want a, a crutch to kind of not maybe do as well as you want to do or or reach your full potential, then I think sometimes you need to have a little bit of a look at that. But you know, I, I'm all for big training days and then having a bit of a, a reward if you need to, if that's a beer, glass of wine. Um, chocolate bar whatever you know at the end of the day like you said we 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 aren't doing this professionally if you can do it to the best of your ability then why cut out some of the stuff that makes you a yeah, person yeah, and that yeah. makes you want to live and it can you much. know i've got people that have really got on it and they have they've liked being lighter it has worked and, and it's actually something that they you know they continue and, and it's helped their performance but it shouldn't always be Everything you do is about your performance because it's not actually, you know, your, your performance is as much made before you even have a clue that you're on planet Earth. It was made before much of your ability, before um, before you even uh, set eyes on the world. Um, that was a bit deep, wasn't it? All right, go. Crikey, crikey. <laughs> Let's just cool down, shall we? Okay, number six. Hot race days. Ooh. 
Well, this doesn't apply to us, does it? Well, it's really funny. This is coming from uh, a chap in uh, in Ireland. Uh, I can't think. James, are you in Northern Ireland or are you just in Ireland? I can't remember. Anyway, he's he's certainly had a lot of wet, wet training over the winter. So, and this first bit, I will I will I will take umbrage with because he says, with the days finally starting to warm up. Mm. As, as Joe and I pause, look outside. Look outside well, it's not think, raining, so let's, yeah, let's, hey-ho. let's take that. It started me thinking that uh, how heat affects triathletes during races, especially in the long distances where you can be racing Ironman half the day and you're having to perform throughout the hottest part of that day. With more and more athletes racing Ironman distance events in hot countries in the hottest part of the year. What advice do you have for us mild climate dwellers who are not used to 40 plus degrees to combat the effects of severe oppressive heat during a race. How does it affect clothing choices, nutrition strategy, pacing, training, etc.? Coming from an athlete who'd never experienced such extreme heat until Roth last year. Thanks for the continued great work on the podcast, Joan Crocker. And that was from James Cleland. And I, I, I've worked with James for quite a long time. And yeah, he had a bit of a day of it in Roth, but it was extremely hot. And, um, and it does always make me think, and there are people going to Lanzarote, and we've already got them on heat training. And, and heat training is actually, it's not difficult, but you have to think about it because you're not going to get enough hot days. And London Marathon, case in point, you know, there would have been people there that had been prepared for it because I've, I've remembered a fair few years when it hasn't clearly been the record, but it's been high teens, even low 20s, and people have got into trouble because they've been training most of the year, you know, single digits maybe into the low teens. And that's quite a big increase in temperature buildup because of the fact that you're running and you're not getting rid of the heat when you get to certain temperatures. Anyway, first of all, find yourself an indoor session that you can do. There have been people that have you know, converted their, their shed and stuck a heater in and just done their turbo sessions or people with a, you know, a home um, treadmill. Um, you can go to a hot indoor class and, again, work. I don't think you have to do high intensity. I read up today about the idea, actually, that the training can be relatively modest, sort of 18, 20 degrees. But it's the hot bath afterwards that actually can be really good. So a hot bath at 40 degrees, which is, um, I mean, they did 30, I think, and 40. But there was a big difference between 30 and 40. Because it's higher than your temperature, it therefore creates a greater um, sort of stimulus. And they found that people got better at warm exercise when they had hot baths. So part of your training is following up training immediately with hot baths. So we are moving away from this idea that everyone's got to jump in ice baths and never get hot. Modest indoor training in the heat, or sometimes actually just doing a training session and you've got, you've got your fan to blow a bit of air over you. You might be on the treadmill, might be on the rower, might be on the bike, but you are actually doing it in hot conditions. You've got bottles there, you are deliberately trying to get yourself hot. Because dealing with the heat, and, and James definitely put himself, you know, right into the right into the the um, the sort of limit of what he was able to do. But sometimes the heat can be mental, and people start backing off because they start to feel it in their head. And most of the time, whenever the heat has 
has um, been a challenge to me. I've just felt it in the head and I, you have to really, I remember one year doing outdoors and, and going going into a black tunnel near the top where I was so... Tunnel hot. vision, not actually a black tunnel. Yes, not a black tunnel, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, and it was going, it was going narrow, narrow, narrow. And I was just thinking, blimey, I hope I get to the top. But my brain, had, my brain had already said, you just keep working against the heat. Do not slow up. Some people get a bit warm and they do start to, to back off, which is their, if you like, that's their self-preservation coming in. Others like to take it to the limit and wake up with an IV in their arm thinking, what the hell went on there? I thought I was getting a medal. I've got an IV in my arm and I don't seem to have got to the finish yet. So the heat can be something that is just too difficult to deal with and you have to adjust your pace you have to move away from what was expected to be especially in triathlon where the last bit is running and you're in the heat i mean that is a that is a hard um lesson in having to back off and and you have to be thinking about this in the lead up if it looks like you know the temperatures are going to be way over what you're used to and definitely when you get into the 30s um you know most people are just surviving in the 20s it's okay certainly low 20s is okay i was talking to people earlier today who are going to do um, mallorca 312 tomorrow and the temperatures look like mid high teens into low 20s so that's fine but if you do something like you know ironman lanzarote and sometimes on the you know run it can be you know 34 upwards that is tough people can still run the ones that have got it right have been in the heat, they've been dealing with it, they've been getting used to it, but it is so difficult. And if you look at the general tendency of, of temperatures, you do get a lot of, uh, certainly mid-Europe places now where in the middle of the summer you get high temperatures. So your, your, your Roths, your Austrias, Nice, you know, loads of places that get very high temperatures right at the point in time where they have the... Um, the actual uh, race so you can train um certainly pacing the nutrition strategy you've got you've got to be thinking about how much um salt or electrolytes you need to take on board because you're going to be sweating and drinking at a much higher level i think also you've got to sometimes make the decision that the race starts to actually be um it, it goes from, you know, you've, you've perhaps gone towards a tendency towards, oh, I'm going to really conquer this one. And you have to start swinging that great big arm of performance back towards, I've just, got to, I've just got to complete it now. Yeah. This has gone from conquer it, maybe even compete hard. Right, no, I've just got, to, just got to complete it. This is totally swung in the opposite direction. And it happens. And it's perhaps the... Um, you know, perhaps it is the fourth discipline to try and train for, but there are some points where unless you're a professional and or you've just lived it, it is so difficult for a lot of people. But a little bit of preparation, though, James, does go a long way. And the hot baths are easy because you just do your evening training and then get straight in the hot bath. Um, you need a little uh, mini temperature gauge that's obviously waterproof that you can put uh, in the bath and make sure it's 40 degrees. Because you... Like reading back through James's question, there you know, forty degree heat. I, I think even even sometimes you would even struggle to deal with that, even if you you're used to living in hot places. Yeah. But 
ultimately, I think after after speaking to Joe, chatting with Joe a fair bit, um, you know, about about clients that are doing certain races, and you know, oh, you know, the temperature could be this and this and this. I think sometimes you have to be prepared to throw that race plan out the window. Um, just just been it and like Joe says kind of that ego pendulum swings back towards the this is going to be a battle mm. of attrition this is just going to be me versus me I just need to get into the mindset of I am going to finish and if things start to get easier and then obviously adjust your race plan that, that's, that's the biggest difficulty that I would say I would have is I would go to a race with a race plan and as soon as that starts to go out the window you're then going right trying to think on your feet as if to say right or do I not bother now? Do I back right off? Mm. Or, or what do you do? But just heat is just something that, that for us in this country, I think we suffer more than mm. anybody else you know, other than, you know, maybe I, dare I say, places like the Norway and Sweden. Mm. And, and, but, but then, you know, but sa- saunas might help. Certainly yeah. hot baths, definitely having sessions where you are getting hot so you aren't always going outdoors because the amount of times that we get long enough periods of hot weather that are timed just right for people to train for any of these events. I mean, you need to be in in hot conditions. Certainly getting near to the event, you've got to guarantee you're going to do it. And if you've got multiple instances where you're going to do hot or potentially hot races, that means all the time that should be in your list of sessions. And once we're at this point in time, it's not ever going to be a disadvantage to train in the heat. It's not going to it's not going to make you any less fit, but it will give you that, uh, if you like that 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 toolbox option that means that when the race suddenly gets warm, and it can in the UK have those you know if we have freak uh, temperatures like um, you know London hit a record. Well, let's say that you know we pretty much know global warming is happening. There's a tendency for the highest temperatures to be uh, measured in the last two decades. So if temperatures are going up, this is going to happen more often. And if this happens more often, there might be fluctuations in the weather. You might have one weekend where it's very wet and the next weekend or two weekends later, you've got some of the highest temperatures. And you're there for dealing with, you know, 27 degree Olympic distance racing in the UK. That's just such a challenge that if you've never done any heat training and people say, oh, yeah, but I can't really do it. Anyone can do it. And I, I would say if it's literally sitting in a hot bath, I think that's quite an easy habit to do after evening training. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Good question. Next one up is from Hamish Renton and... He says, I have two questions, Um, a techie one. Martin can get excited as there's a tyre in it. Oh, no tyres. (laughs) But, and a more philosophical one. Question one, I'm doing Wimberwall in June uh, and was wondering whether you'd advise uh, taking a carbon CX bike with 35mm tyres at sort of 65 PSI and no tri-bars or taking a heavier, more conventional road bike with clip-on bars at a more standardised 90 PSI. Both bikes fit well and are comfortable. I train on both. It's a lumpy course. I weigh 90 or so kilograms, and the trend to lower uh, PSIs and wider tyres, but is 35 and 65 taking this a bit too far? I... Having ridden some of the the Wimbledon course, I know the road surface isn't fantastic. I think it would boil down to 
what you would feel the most comfortable on mm. um, overall. I mean, even with with a CX bike with thirty five mil tires on, you know, you can change those tires if you need to. You yeah. know, you can put a twenty eight on a CX bike. My training bike is a converted CX bike with bigger mudguard clearance, disc brakes, and twenty eight mil tires, and it you know it it, it rattles along quite nicely. Um, I thought it was a bit slow actually, but carry on. That's because I haven't dug it out proper one yet, Joe. Um, so I th- I think with the with the course and the conditions like they are, I think I would I would probably go for the CX bike personally. Mm. Uh, the carbon will give you the comfort, will give you more comfort, I should say, um, over the bumpier stuff. You get less road road buzz from the road through to you. Mm. Um, you know the thirty five mil tire. You might want to look at maybe trimming those down a little bit. You know. Chopping them in for 28s. 28s. Yeah. Because um, most of the 28s, like the Conti 28s come up more like a 30, 31 anyway, yeah. don't they? And if you're that if you're that bothered, you can go to a 30 or a 32. Yeah. But you can then, if you need to, run them at a slightly higher pressure. So We don't know, because he says, and a more conventional road bike with clip-on bars and a standard 90 PSI. We don't know what the width of that is, but it probably sounds like he's talking like a 23 um, or 25. He doesn't see what the actual width of the tyre is on the standard road bike. But, it, but you know... Comfort, particularly on the on the CX bikes and and those those tires, is probably going to with the state of the roads. It's probably going to be that you know it's not potholes. It's just the general roughness, roughness yeah. throughout the course that means that you are better to be on a softer tire. Um, actually, not making that roughness any worse. You start really pumping the tires up high, and you know, firstly you're bouncing off of every little. Um, divot and and bump in the road surface but also there is a really good chance that you're actually going to just vibrate yourself into just fatigue fatigue, you're going to be so you know banging on the 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 sort of um handlebars and then you get a real it's almost like an rsi type effect you soften the pressure down and maybe hamish and other people should try this is actually to to move away from the default tire pressures you've always thought about and and soften them down just you know lock 10 off straight away and just try the next ride at 10 psi less think oh that's pretty nice i like that that's completely different and and the fear of performance loss by dropping pressure as well, whereas nine times out of ten, the performance loss that sometimes you would get is actually kind of null and void because you've got that less fatigue when you're getting onto yeah. the run. You know, you yeah. haven't got that vibration fatigue that you get. But also with this, the aero bar loss, because I know the Wimbledon course, the, the, the ride section of it it's a lot of up and downs and there's a lot of what i call downhill corner braking as well almost you know down to walking speed and then kind of either back up the other side or then gathering a bit more speed so the aero bars aren't quite so important with those with that type of not course. an aggressive aero position they can be quite nice to lean on when to, you get the option change of position yeah. I particularly across better. that that top bit can be into the into, into the, the south southwesterly yeah, yeah, which yeah. can sometimes affect people but i, I think comfort with the wider tires and with the tri bars, actually just means you're not you're not on a you know take a conventional road bike with really hard pressure around anything around Exmoor. Um, there's a few smooth roads, but there aren't many. No. Uh, and you just notice it just takes so much out of you. So if you've never been there, you know it's one of those places to to recce, and often that's really one of the useful things of going anywhere to recce is to actually think what's the surface like 
if the bike crosses loops, if it's out and backs, so if it's one giant loop, to know what the surface is roughly like can give you an idea as to um, never how narrow can you go with tyres, but what's going to be the optimum tyre and PSI to keep yourself uh, comfortable and safe. So yeah. that's good. Thank you, Hamish. Part two. I've been doing try since the early 2000s, although took a few years out due to family starting a business, but always keeping some training ticking over in the background, just not structured. Been back in the swing the last three years, and this year's Wimbledon is the first big middle distance test. I'm doing 10-hour weeks on average, a mix of solo and club sessions. A few guys in the club are encouraging uh, a, a crack at Ironman distance in 2019. So my question is, when are you ready for an Ironman? Is it better to have a couple of seasons of 70.3 and then move up? Uh, or if anything, I am more worried about the time commitment rather than anything else. Thanks for the podcast. Keep it up, Hamish. Now, I can answer this one. Having never, ever done an Ironman, you will never, ever be ready in your, <laughs> in your own head. You will never... The guys I've spoken to, so three guys that have gone to do um, some of the kind of continental Ironman races, every single person that I've spoken to have said, I don't think I've done enough training. Yeah. And that is just a built-in anxiety towards mm. that. I personally, Joe might disagree with this, but I think having some slightly seasoned legs underneath you um, helps massively. Only with situations that you get into sometimes where you have to change a, a, mm. a race plan. And that just that clear thinking of, oh, I did it in that. Oh, I wonder if it will oh, mm. probably work in this one. And then being able to push kind of push on and push through. Um I mean, again, like I said, Joe might disagree, but like I said, the guys that I have spoken to, every single person has done around and gone, uh, two weeks out, I don't think I've done enough. Yeah, but that's always, that's, that's, the, that's the nerves. I, I was going to say, that's four, the anxiety. Four, four weeks the... out to two weeks out, everything's yeah. too close, but it's too late. Yeah, yeah. I think with doing the 70.3s, Hamish is going to get an idea of you know, how his body is, you know, starting the 2000s, we can all remember certain things in the in the 2000s, and then you start to actually do stuff, and it can be, whoa, hold on a minute, that's um, that feels a bit different. He's 90 kilos, so there is a uh, there's a possibility that the training could, you know, it could end up causing issues with joint structure, and if you ram up the training too quick, you might get 170.3 done now, but halfway through the training up to the full distance, it all goes belly up, and you know, sometimes people have done it very quickly into their build, but they've done it. And I can't think that you can make somebody's mind up. But if it's the right time, then it's the right time. And, you know, in worrying about the commitment to triathlon and the brownie points and how much it's going to affect business, it is important to have a year to bed in and work out how much it's going to take to do a, a half because the commitment is much greater, obviously, for an Ironman. But unless you've got that pattern of behaviour and you've worked out your family and work and everything, you could be jumping out the frying pan and literally bouncing straight into the fryer because you don't actually have a sense of what the... Um, you don't have a sense of really what it takes to do this triathlon thing. You can get something done, and after a few months, be it Wimbledon, um, you're in the um, you're in the, the south part of the country. I know that, um, so it's um, it's probably quite an easy one for you to do. If you set up 
some European 2099 man, you have literally ramped it up in 12 months to a big extent. And that may work. Some people it may work, but if it hasn't been ticking along enough in the background, that acceleration might be too much. And then afterwards you go, blimey, I did that Ironman and I wasn't even really used to training. I should have spent more time. My hunch is, and I know Hamish, my hunch is you have a couple of seasons of 70.3s. Because there'll still be plenty of Ironmans around in 2019. And if anyone that did it in 20, uh, sorry, in, in 2020, uh, if anyone did it in 2019 and it went well, they might want to do it again in, uh, in, in 2020 as well with you. But I wouldn't be on somebody else's timescale because I think it can be, you know, this is the first time back doing half distance. And I think with your physiology, with your business and with your um, lack of immediate triathlon style racing i think it could be too much of a jump into doing something that you don't want to go into an ironman saying i haven't really got used to the training for the half but we're doing an ironman now and that pressure you know once you've pushed the button and you've spent your five six hundred pounds wow. entry fee yeah you've 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 committed to that and that that will be most likely with these events and this is why Hamish is thinking about it now, is that, you know, they'll go online immediately after this year's race and therefore you've got to be able to press that button now. Well, if you make a commitment in July 2018, you're on it then. You're thinking, blimey, this time next year I'm doing an Ironman. And I think that acceleration of um, the commitment and the, the challenge, I think is too quick because I, I look back and think you've got to have a reasonable amount of time and almost get your, you know, your 90 kilo body down to 85. You're training in place nicely for your 10 hours for the uh, half Ironman. Then from that 10 hour plateau that you've kept on, then in 2019 through some of the winter, but most of the time through early 2020, that's when you put in the Ironman training. At which point he's then had a full 18 months of consistent 70.3s. You can still do sportifs to get your legs in long distance bike mode. I would not say do marathons, but you could certainly do the odd trail run as a soft impact time on your feet. But at 18 months and then January, February, March 2020, you start to build up the Ironman. You've got 18 months of 10 hours and then you start building up to what will effectively might be, you know, 16 to maybe sometimes 18 hours but that line might only ever go to 15 hours that's the biggest weeks you do but the key sessions in that 15 hour week are brilliant you know it's a six and a half hour ride you've got you know three lots of um four kilometer swims you've got you know some runs where you've spent uh, 30k running over the day i think delay to 2020 fair enough is that what I, you do are you going to do that I, I, I'm just absolutely um, amazed that guys and girls do the Ironman. Well done to you all. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, quite, it's quite a thing now for people to, um, to uh, I think, challenge themselves over these things and have, actually have, um, you know, a big, uh, that's a big build-up. It used to be you could enter a bit later, you could therefore decide in the year that you're in, oh, I'll do, I'll do an Ironman this summer. Now people have to set themselves up. 
I think also the exterior factors of families, business, work, you know, yeah. etc. So that all has to be factored in as well. And I think if you, like with Hamish, if you give yourself an extra kind of 18 months, then the family kind of, you get yourself into a routine. The family gets used to the routine. And then if you did it for six months and then said, oh, yeah, I'm doing Ironman and increase that. Yeah, yeah. The family, oh, hang on a minute. We, where are you going now? I'm yeah. going out for a run now. All yeah. right. And you, you kind of almost in the off-season then have to have your, like Joe and I yeah. are on, you've got to do your brownie points things yeah. as well, haven't you? Because you for Imbleball, I mean, this isn't the this isn't the original 70.3, so this is another event, but let's say it's June-ish. Well, for some of the Ironmans, Hamish would literally have to do this half Ironman, finish it, within a few weeks go, oh, I've entered an Ironman next week, uh, next year. And that's quite a, you know, that's that's not only quite a commitment for him, but it is quite a sudden change. Blimey, one half Ironman in, you suddenly do an Ironman for the next 12 months. And it, it doesn't have to take over. The moment you put Ironman, um, click, enter, off it goes. You don't have to then change the next day and be, you know, walking around with Speedos all the time and be smelling of chlorine. And <laughs> if you're not on, if you're not, image. If you're not on the bike, then you seem to be out running and you never seem to be anywhere. You know, there's there's plenty of people that get it done, but they, they've built up and... Within some of their 10-hour, 70.3 weeks, they might have a real massive bike overload and do a five-hour bike and do, um, you know, two one-hour swims, you know, a couple of one-hour runs and just another one-hour bike. But they've got an Ironman bike in their week, but they're not doing Ironman training. So I think that's the way to think about it is you gradually evolve the training. And um, lots of people do this. They, they come and say... I want to do half this year, but I want you to get me ready for one uh, in, you know, July 2019. But I'm starting the process of just going up a level this year because it is, you know, it is a big ask to do that and to do it right. And the more that you've got behind you, the less that you have to be making every single session count because your body's naturally had the capacity to do a five to six hour half Ironman so that's become its bread and butter so you're then getting it ready for Ironman the acceleration should never be so dramatic that um, really that it puts everything in your life under such huge pressure and um, so good luck with that Hamish keep us uh, up to date but if you are doing any of these things you do have to sometimes have a bit of a level head about it it's always possible that you could do it I mean, you, you could enter, people have sometimes come back with race plans. I'm thinking, blimey, that's not only going to, you know, probably stretch your um, body to breaking point. I think in the background, there's going to be a bit of, you know, fallout after this because it is it is not what I would say is perhaps in balance. But the person gets themselves into trouble. I've just got to get them to the finish line. Um, I think that's enough because we have got questions next week and we do want to get this podcast out and we don't want it to be two hours of people saying, uh, you know, I had to sit in the car and wait for this to finish and got late to work and all those, you know, all those things that come in. Bursting with excitement. Bursting with excitement. I just couldn't leave the, just couldn't leave the, uh, the, the, the podcast. Um, so uh, I think, you know, we're well into the season. It's nice that people are ready done some things i hope that whatever you're doing listeners you you do challenge yourself it's a challenge to get some of the stuff done i i don't just work with people that have got 
you know, all the time in the world, I've realized half the time the challenge is to get things done. And sometimes the last thing you turn up to a race is saying, Blam, I've done everything I can, I'm going to smash it. Sometimes you're just like, I just want to get to the finish. This will be a miracle to have done this after two weeks that I've had. And, and that's the difference is you can't always have playtime uh, in, uh, in your rules. Sometimes you just have to get it done. But if you persevere, if you enjoy it and you don't put the huge amount of pressure that I can see oftentimes makes people it just makes them often just have to to struggle to get to somewhere where i'm sorry i think it's out of reach at which point you're not going to enjoy it because you're never going to get there um there should be a stretch goal there should certainly be things that you can enjoy and perhaps help people i love to hear it when somebody says they're going to do a race you know a running race they're just going to jog around with a friend but the friend needs encouragement brilliant you are therefore part of the solution you're not part of the problem you're actually giving back to other people and encouraging them but sometimes you want to do your best racing but every dog has its day and sometimes if things aren't quite going right it might happen for a few seasons and, and your performances just you know fall off a bit but the whole point is this whole process is an endurance process so this year might not go to plan that's all right don't throw your toys out the pram just work on what you can do things in your in your job in your um sort of lifestyle things that have happened that you didn't have full control of but they will calm down later you know the best clients and the best friends and the best people that i see in endurance are the ones that are very malleable to things going on they do not persist in bashing their head against the wall when that wall's getting thicker not thinner they actually say, it's not probably going to happen right now. I'm going to walk sideways and just keep going sideways till I eventually get through. They don't just say, no, 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 but I've got, I've got, you know, I've got to do it. No, sometimes you have to adjust your plan. And if every other part of this universe is pointing towards you adjusting the plan, it doesn't matter if in your head you've said, no, but I can't adjust my plan. Sometimes the best plans are when people change them and the relief and the sense of, okay, I'm going to move my energies in a different direction. Oh, do you know what? That's so much nicer now. Oh, it makes sense now. That's a relief to carry on and say, I'm going to do X and everything on that trajectory is wrong. I've had people this year cancel, uh, like, certainly, you know, smaller races, qualifiers, uh, Ironman races, or sometimes most part of the season based on the health. They say, right, this year I'm going to do this, this and this. I'm going to, you know bed down a consistency but I'm not going to put these huge goals because this is and this is happening and it's just the wrong time to do it and I think we all need to have that flexibility to sometimes say I'm in a good point right now I can crack on or it's not quite going right what can I do or what can't I do and I need to enjoy it it does not want to be something where you know everyone else would be saying what are you doing just you know Give, give yourself a break. And meanwhile, you're thinking, no, 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 I just got to keep pushing. just got to keep pushing. This is your playtime. Unless there's any pros listening. If if this isn't your playtime, then get to the finish quickly. Get to bed. <laughs> get to bed. But also get to the finish quickly because your mortgage depends on it. But everyone else, fun time. And we have fun this end of it. We do. Because I think... Um, most of all, because we do enjoy it, don't we? We have these natters when we're out training and we do, um, I don't do cyclocross, but you do cyclocross and I do, you know, tries and time trials and things in the summer. But we enjoy the fact that we like testing ourselves, but at the same time, we also like switching off and just riding. And you've been jogging. Jogging. Jogging, I hear. Outrageous. Jogging. Outrageous. Um, 
So we do enjoy it and we do like your questions and there are more questions um, uh, slots available for next time. So send it in. You can go through the uh, Safe Up Racing Twitter account. You can go through the Coach Do Beer Twitter account. You can go through our websites. We're on Insta, Face, Twitter, the full Monty. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, yes. Have you got just one piece of Confucius Crocker wisdom to pass on to our listeners to, to let them leave this podcast in a state of zen? We are all human. <laughs> Come on, is this serious? Um, we are all human, but we are not the same. What are you laughing at? I'm trying to go, I'm trying to be deep. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Remember, train smart. And have fun. Bye.